morning. My name is Jose Quinones, and I'm honored to be with you today. I met Phil and his family this summer on a canoe trip down the Green River. It was an incredible and memorable experience. Imagine five families, four priests. <laughs> yeah. 18 people total, nine adults and nine kids, canoeing 100 miles down the Green River through the Canyonlands National Park in Utah for six days and five nights. It was awesome. My kids are still talking about it, sharing stories of frightening moments like when we were attacked by a swarm of mosquitoes at our first camp. It was a biblical scene. <laughs> you know, they also talk about moments of pure joy of swimming, you know, as they uh, swim and flow down the river. But I must confess, I was not keen in going uh, on this trip at first. It was much outside my comfort zone. I've never been on a canoe, much less in one going down a fast moving river. But we went for the experience to bond to create memories. What I remember is going into survival mode, drawing quiet at times, staying focused on what needed to get done through the day, packing and unpacking, setting up tent, taking it down, moving all our stuff to and fro, and doing it day in and day out for five days. <laughs> it was a lot of work. In retrospect, I'm glad my wife talked me into going. It was a positive experience. And it brought up memories of another trip, a trip not made by choice, but by necessity, with, uh, with just as many people in kits and tow going through similarly harsh terrain, but without the gear. No tents, no stove, no food. That story is about me coming to America, my immigration story that is very much like millions of other stories of immigrants living in the shadows in America today. I came to the U.S. as a nine-year-old boy crossing the border in the dark of night, living undocumented for many years. 18 years after crossing the border, I graduated from Princeton with a master's degree. 18 years after that, I was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship for my work helping people improve their financial lives and become visible, active, and successful in the financial marketplace. People hear this and wonder how I managed to do it. They expect to hear a story that, of that beloved American myth of the triumphant individual. But that's not my story. My story is about family, faith, community. It's about knowing that no one does it alone, that we need each other to live, to survive, to thrive. It's about knowing that no one is any less than or greater than anyone else. Let me show you what I mean. I want you to come with me to Tijuana, Mexico. It's the 4th of July, 1980. It's a hot summer day. A young boy is sitting by a dusty hillside. He's been sitting there for hours, waiting for the sun to set. His five siblings are sitting close by. Nobody's smiling, nobody's talking. Across the horizon, there are other families dotting the hillside, also waiting for the sun to set. And on the other side, a border patrol is driving slowly along the ridge in a light green Ford Bronco scanning the terrain, waiting for the people on the hillside to start moving. 
That little boy sitting doesn't know what lays ahead. All he can think about is what his sister told him. Stay close, don't get lost, follow instructions. If the three men, the coyotes, who agree to take them to El Norte say run, he runs. If they say stop, he stops. If they say hide, he hides. That boy is me. The, the, the sun eventually sets. It gets dark quickly. The coyotes signal to start walking. We walk for hours in dark through the mountains until we reach a large road. The coyotes tell us that we'll be crossing underneath it. They walk us to the, uh, the mouth of a drain pipe about four, four feet wide. The coyotes argue about who will go in first and the losing coyote leads us through. It is pitch black and muggy and muddy and suffocating. It smells like human waste and decay. We follow silently, some crawling, others bent over, all concentrating on taking one step, then another. It feels like the tunnel will never end. Then a hint of light in the darkness emerges in the distance. We are nearing the end of the pipe. So many horrible things that could have happened to us, dangers lurking in the darkness, predators, death. Every year, hundreds of women, men and women and children die in this darkness trying to cross the border. We got lucky. I was born in a tiny town in La Soledad in Durango, Mexico, the fifth of six kids. My father was successful, was a successful cattle rancher in a large, with a large herd and land. One day when I was two years old, he went out with my older brother, Santos, to do some work. Three men approached them and shot my father dead, leaving Santos unharmed. It was a hit job. Overnight, my mother became a single parent to six children. She had no support and was frightened of our futures in that little town, so she left everything behind and moved us to the state capital just a cap couple of hours away. We lived in a small house close to Central Bus Depot in town. I remember the Bus Depot clearly because that was where my brothers and I sold the local newspaper. Sometimes I sang on buses while my younger brother Miguel collected donations. Other times my siblings and I went door to door selling my mother's handmade gorditas or bath sponges woven together by hand from agave fibers. As a kid, the work did not seem unusual. It was what we did to help put food on the table and keep our family together. We were poor by all accounts, but we felt safe because we were together. My mom's deep faith and devotion ensured that we were rich spiritually. She gave us everything. She was loving, attentive, and caring, always quick to smile. Every day, she made sure that we went to school with clean clothes and brushed hair. Then my mother became ill, and after months of suffering, she passed away from lymphoma on March 9th, 1980. Despite her suffering, my mother had clarity of mind. In her final days, family members came to ask if they could help by taking one of us kids. To every request, my mom said, no. If you take one child, you take them all. 
No matter what happened, she wanted us to, was to stay together. And on her last day, she thought we were going to be together. We all did. My grandmother was living with us at that time. She had moved in months before to look after us while my mother was in and out of the hospital. We've made uh, plans that Abuelita would come to you know, come continue living with us to care for us. But two hours after my mother died, Abuelita Santos also passed away. She died of a broken heart. She had 12 children and she loved them so much that she would say throughout her life that when the first of her child died, that she would die as well so that she could be with them in their journey back to heaven. Within days of their passing, two caskets stood side by side. The vigil service was held at my aunt's house and there were streams of people coming in and out to pay their respects. No one in Mexico st uh, uh, stood up to take a look after us. In the months following the deaths of my mother and my abuelita, we lived alone. We had aunts and uncles and cousins check in on us, but no one took, took charge of us. I mean, how could they? There were six of us. At the time, my older half-brother, Andres, who was already living in San Jose, was arranging for his family in Mexico to join him in the United States. Concerned that we were living alone, he asked us to join their journey. We didn't have much of a choice, so we did. We joined Andres' family and crossed the border. We arrived in San Jose less than four months after my mom's death because no single family member could take, could take us all, six of us, they split us up. We found ourselves in a strange land, undocumented and afraid. Though we, were, were, though we were grateful for the help of our relatives, we were strangers in their homes too. We could tell they viewed us as a burden. So we grieved silently, alone, and separated from one another. We lived in constant fear of getting caught and deported. We learned to keep to ourselves, to be quiet, to be small and invisible. My sister, Rutilia, who was the second oldest, suffered from epilepsy throughout her life. She needed help but her need proved too much for the family she was living with. One day in 1982, that family called it quits and drove her to Tijuana. They put her on a bus back to our hometown in Mexico, and without medical care or anyone to look after her, she died alone in Mexico within months of returning. She was 15 years old. News of her death was hard on all of us, but most of all, my sister Amparo. When she turned 18, she did the unthinkable. Legally an adult, she rented a two-bedroom basement apartment and brought us back together again so that that way we could grow up together, take care of one another, just like our mother had wanted. She knew that that, she knew that, that was the only way for us to survive. We lived by ourselves, five siblings by that point, ages 10 to 18. We all took different roles to keep our home in order. We went to school during the week and worked at the flea market on the weekends. Everyone earned a little bit of money and chipped in to buy food to pay rent. We were poor by all accounts, but we felt safe because we were together. We raised each other, worked to support each other, teaching one another what we knew. And it's hard to imagine now, but after years of savings of all of us chipping in to cover our living expenses, we actually managed to buy a house in 1986. It was a small three-bedroom house in San Jose. I love that house because I love what it meant. 
the day we got the keys and moved in, I felt like we had arrived, like we had, like, like we belonged. Our lives felt like they were on track. It felt like the earth had stopped shaking for a bit. I look back at those years as one of my happiest times in our lives. Then one day, President Ronald Reagan made it even better. In what today seems unimaginable, President Reagan signed a law that gave immigrants amnesty. Three million people emerged from the shadows to live life without fear in the full light of day. Our world got bigger overnight. We got green cards, we got permissions to work, to exist. I got a social security number, a driver's license, a bank account. I qualified for student loans. I got grants to pay for college. I became a US citizen. In other words, I was given permission to participate, to build my life, my future in America. I could not be standing here today if I had not gotten legal status in 1986. Amnesty literally unleashed my human potential as I believe it could unleash the potential of the 11 million people who are living in the shadows today. My family's journey is not so different than theirs. We just so happened to cross the border before January 1st, 1982, the cutoff date in President Reagan's amnesty law. So you see, my story is no different from the people living in the shadows, struggling to survive, finding ways to stay together. But given all that is happening in America today, I'm afraid that stories like mine are growing less and less likely. I was lucky to come up in a time when America seemed more confident, generous, assured of its place in the world, enough so that granting amnesty to people like me, unleashing our dreams, our energy, our potential, was not some dire act, but a sign of America's strengths and values. That's not our America today. We are divided, we are fearful, we're isolated. The current administration is locking up families at the US-Mexico border, tearing babies away from their parents for seeking safety and refuge. They're inflicting pain and uncertainty to even those here with documents threatening to remove legal status for those, for, for those who use public benefits in their time of need. And for others, they're stripping them of, citizen, of their citizenship altogether. These aren't acts of a generous and confident nation. But I believe that if we stand together, if we speak up, if we organize, if we vote, we can help America correct course. To me, it all starts by telling our stories, by proclaiming our shared humanity, our dignity, our agency. This morning's story from Luke is a perfect example. Jesus tells 10 lepers to go and see the priest after they approach him asking for mercy. As they went, they were made clean, they were healed but only one turns back to praise Jesus, surprising him in turn. He said, weren't 10 made clean? And he seems shocked that the one giving thanks was a Samaritan, a foreigner. Jesus said, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. To me, this story is a reminder that despite all the sorrow, all the pain, all the suffering we may experience in and through life, that when we are seen and heard, that when we are awashed with love that heals and frees us, 
we could be just like that Samaritan in the story, the person who is made well through God's love and is free to get up and go on their way, but chooses to return and give praise with joy. Amen.